So this morning, the message is called, What's Your Motive? And if you will turn in your Bibles um, to the book of Acts, because that's the, the book that we're currently studying, you'll see this dramatic and, and somewhat tr- tragic event take place. And we want to be open to God's Spirit to understand not only what was happening in that day and age, but also what is happening today. Because of God's Word, we know that it's living and active. It has a purpose to accomplish in our lives. So we want to bring ourselves to Him, open up our hearts, open up our minds to understand His Word. So would you just bow with me and we'll pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that it's been preserved for us. It's, it's here in our hands. It's here on the screen. It's something that we can uh, grab onto. And sometimes we wrestle with it because we're not sure uh, how to understand it. But you have given us your precious Holy Spirit, your spirit to open up our minds and to help us to understand, your spirit to teach us, your spirit to correct us and put us on the right path. So we yield ourselves to your Holy Spirit this morning. Teach us today from your word. Give us our daily bread. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. So, so far we've been looking uh, sort of slowly through these first couple chapters of the book of Acts, and uh, last week uh, Yasha shared with us from the end of chapter 4 when the believers were together in, in such unity, spiritual unity but also material unity. They shared everything uh, together as they were gathered there in Jerusalem. And now the, the church had been born just a few weeks earlier. Uh, the Holy Spirit had come on the apostles and the disciples and everyone that was gathered there. And now the church is, is beginning to function, beginning to grow. It's like it's beginning to get its legs a little bit. And so they have been sharing together in the apostles' teachings. They've been sharing in one another's homes. They've been sharing their goods They've shared even of their material things with one another. So we want to remember the context of what this next event uh, is, right? The context is, is what's just happened before and what's going to happen afterwards. And so chapter 5 starts with the words, now a man named Ananias. But let's remember just before that, at the end of chapter 4, it talks about a man named Joseph. So Joseph was a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. He sold a field that he had owned, and he brought that money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. And that's the end of chapter 4. And then it says, now a man named Ananias. So we just saw Joseph, and what Joseph did out of the goodness of his heart, no one told him to do that, but as he saw the needs in the community of believers around him, he wanted to do something to meet those needs, and so he had the resources to do that. He was able to sell a field and bring that money and give it to the church, give it to the apostles, so that they could distribute it and meet the needs of the, of the community around them. So that's what just took place. In the midst of that, 
In the midst of that is chapter 5. So before we go on, I want to I just highlight what is important to God in this situation. So before we get into what happened, the tragedy of what happened, let's remember that in, in chapter 4, verse 32, it says, those who believed were in one heart, had one heart and one soul. There was this issue of oneness that was going on in the church. There was this issue of, of unity. We call it unity. This, and, and in this issue, we're going to hear how God blesses, but also we're going to hear how God is jealous uh, for this unity that's taking place. So this is the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Psalm, in Psalm 133, this unity, this, this blessing that they're living under here, in Psalm, in Psalm 133, the psalmist says, how good and precious it is when we dwell together in unity, because that's where the Lord pours out his blessings. That's Psalm 133. So the Lord pours out his blessings when we dwell together in unity. What's happening in these early chapters of Acts here is that Luke, the, the author of this, he's going to contrast unity with the opposite, which is disunity. He's going to show us what God is pleased with, and now he's going to show us what God is not pleased with. And God is not pleased with anything that causes division and hurt in his body. God died for the church. God brought Christ so that we could become the church. So unity is ultra important to God. I'm going to say that again. Unity is ultra important to God. In fact, it's so important that Jesus, God, God in in the Son, he prayed for our unity in John 17. One of his his beautiful prayers, which is illustrated for us in, in John chapter 17, it's so beautiful. And when unity takes place, beautiful things happened. He prayed in John 17. My prayer, Father, is not for them alone. He was talking about those disciples that were gathered there right with him. But I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. So that includes you and me if you're a believer. And my prayer is that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and I are one, I am in you and you are in me. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So the world could believe that Jesus was sent by God to bring salvation. That's what our unity represents. It it represents the message of salvation, that God could take people that are so different and bring them together in unity in, in the name of Jesus. Bring us together as family in the name of Jesus. So unity to God is ultra important, and unity is a beautiful thing, and beautiful things come from it. People's needs are met. We, we just read about that at the end of, of, of chapter 4. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were his very own, but they shared everything with each other. And then great power was, was on, uh, on display. As the apostles continued to do miracles, there was much grace among them. There were no needy people among them, it says in, in, chapter, in, verse four, in verse 34. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold it and brought the money so that it could be distributed among the people. So a beautiful picture of unity, of needs being met, of the t- 
teaching of the gospel and the power of the gospel on display is taking place in the early church because God's pouring out his blessing on them because he's now in them by the Holy Spirit. He's, he's brought his spirit to live within them. But just as beautiful things follow in the beauty of unity, ugly things follow disunity. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 5. So I want you to see that. You've got to compare these two things. They're not separate incidences. They're one lesson that God is bringing through the Holy Spirit, through Luke as he writes. In a sense, it's like a warning. There was a warning that Jesus gave in Matthew 12, 25, which I thought of this week as I was studying this passage. What Jesus said, every kingdom that's divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. That's what Jesus was teaching his disciples and his followers. So division, when we divide it against ourselves, we are weakened and we can be destroyed by that. This is the reason that we should pray for our nation. When our nation is in discord, when there's a lot of division, when there's a lot of anger, when there's a lot of resentment, when there's a lot of things that are taking place that are not right, we need to pray and ask for God to bring about his solution, to bring about unity. We need to pray for peace. This is not a political message. This is a godly message. Pray for the peace of the nation that you live in so that may be peace and that people can hear the word of God and, and they can come to him. This isn't just about nations, though. This is about churches. This is about our church. This is about our homes. This is about your home. Unity should be held preciously and and held on to at all cost. This is where the Lord pours out his blessing when we are united together in the name of Jesus. So we all want the blessing of the Lord, But we're not always willing to pay the price to get the blessing of the Lord. What I mean by that is, Acts 5 will illustrate for us, it shows that the church is now struggling, even from the very beginning here, in the early church, they're struggling to keep the unity. Paul had to write, actually, to one of the other churches in Corinth. He had to write to them because they were actually taking out lawsuits against each other. They were suing each other in the courts. Christians were bringing each other before the courts and suing one another over their disagreements. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. So he's really confronting them in the Corinthian church. This is not how we treat brothers and sisters. We work towards and we struggle to get the unity of the faith. Now, I want to read you a few sort of comical illustrations, but they're not really comical, except that they are, right? So often we, we have difficulties in the church. Often our oneness comes under a testing, right? And we're not, we're not always able to hold on to the unity. Here's an example. There was, a, there was a pastor who was writing about this, and then he began to receive responses from people. He was writing about disunity over an issue in his church. And people from all over the, the country began to respond and say, oh, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't believe what happened in my church and what happened in my church. So here's a few examples. I'm not going to give them all to you because there's too many. 
sadly. But basically, there was a fight in one church over the picture of Jesus, which was going to be put in the foyer. Which picture of Jesus would they put up? And the guy thought, well, no one has a real picture of Jesus. There were no cameras back then, right? So, so, but they were fighting over this type of thing. There was a dispute over whether the worship leader should wear his shoes during the service or not. Big fight. Big church split over this. There was a dispute over the discovery in the church budget that was off by 10 cents. Someone finally gave a dime to settle that issue. 10 cents. But people were willing to fight over it in the church. There was a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper was, when they were giving the Lord's Supper, when they, when they received the cup, they realized it was cran grape juice instead of pure grape juice. And they were upset and had a church fight over that. In another church, there were two different churches, actually, that were reported fighting over the same thing. It was the type of coffee that they served. In the one church, they moved from Folgers to a stronger sort of Starbucks kind of brand. But in another church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. And the members left the church over this fight, over what strength of coffee to have. The list goes on and on, but we have to end with a couple more. Some members of a church left the church because one of the church members hid the vacuum cleaner from them. (laughs) This resulted in a major split and a fight in that church. And lastly, there was a big argument over whether the fake dusty plants on the front of the podium could be removed or not. These are real things that people responded to this pastor who was writing about disunity in the church. These are the types of things that don't belong in the church. These are the types of things that that we should go back to that, that, that slide that says, why not rather be wronged, right? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated even? Work towards unity. Unity is a a difficult thing. So as family, as believers, and also as Americans, we're so fixated on being right and our rights. We fight too often among ourselves. We say, I'm going to prove my point, and I'm not going to give up. I'm going to get my way no matter what. When we do this, we're inviting division into our relationships. When we insist on having our own way. At what cost are we demanding to be right all the time? We need to be reminded that we don't fully understand where our arguments come from. But James, the book of James, tells us where our arguments come from. In the book of James, he says that our arguments come from our flesh. In other words, our sinful nature. He reminds us that these are the things that destroy unity. We wonder why we don't live under God's blessing, but are we demanding to be right all the time? Or are we willing to sacrifice and receive God's blessing of unity? Let me read from James. James 3, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show this by their good life, by their good deeds which are done in humility. 
These things come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitterness, envy, or selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it and deny the truth. Because such, quote-unquote, wisdom does not come down from heaven. It comes from the earth. It comes from your earthly, unspiritual, even the demonic, he says in the book of James. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will have disorder and every kind of evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. Then it is peace-loving. It is considerate. It is submissive. It is full of mercy and good things, good fruit. It is impartial, and it is sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It's a good question. Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? Right? So it has to come from somewhere. And what James is saying, like, spend some time in there with God. Spend some time in, in, in that chaos. Don't, don't just focus on what's happening on the outside. Sit with God. Sit with his word. Sit with the spirit. And let him, let him teach you. Let him show you. 1 Corinthians 10, it says that we're called to this. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he couldn't say it any stronger than he's going to say it. That all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in your mind and in your thoughts. Perfectly united in our mind and our thoughts. We're so used to being different than one another. We're so used to having different thoughts and different... Yeah. So I don't think he's talking about a complete uniformity. We all think the same. You know, we're just these robots that are programmed to always be the same. I don't think he's talking about the uniqueness of your personality. What he's talking about is in the area of division. In the area where, where we, we just are willing to fight to the death to be right or to have our way. This is not the spirit of Jesus. This is the spirit of the world. And it is our flesh, our flesh that desires our own way all the time. But Ephesians 4 verse 3 says, make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. That must mean it's not easy. Because if it takes effort, that means it's work, right? If it was easy, it would just happen. But if you have to make every effort, it's like pushing this boulder up over this hill. Like, I got to put some energy into this to make sure that there's a bond of peace between me and my brothers and my sisters in the church. That I don't allow there to be division. I don't allow there to be grievances. I bring them to the Lord and then I, I work them out with my brothers and sisters. This is where the blessing of the Lord is. But we miss out on the blessing if we refuse to put in the effort to work towards unity, to work towards love, to forgive one another, to be gracious to one another, to realize that nobody's perfect. 
except for Christ himself. We're all sinners. Let's just admit that. We're all sinners. We're all selfish at times, sometimes more times than we should be. We all have different opinions about different things. We all like to insist on our own way. But is it, is it any wonder why we're not walking under the Lord's blessing if we live like that? In that selfishness, insisting that we always, you know, are on top. This is not the spirit of Jesus. Jesus, who took off his outer robe, got the towel and basin, and washed his disciples' feet. That is the spirit of Jesus. Serving, loving, being willing to be the lowest so that others can be blessed. We have all, at times, resisted the spirit of unity. Every one of us. We've not walked in that unity or that love that God desires for us to walk. And so we need to confess that. We need to be willing to go to God with that. He knows. There's no secrets with him, which we're going to find out in a minute. He knows what's going on in your heart. Even if on the outside you wear a good mask. The early church was able up to chapter 4, to walk in spiritual and even material unity. We struggle because we, we're, we're very privatized in the way that we look at our lives. There's a lot of things that you say are mine. You know that, um, where's Nemo when those, those seagulls are on the thing and they see, see like a, a fish or something like that and they all go, mine, 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 mine. If you didn't see where's Nemo, then you don't know what I'm talking about. But, but we're like that. Everything's mine. That's mine. You know, I do this at home. Ask my wife. There's times when I'm like, that's mine. My son wants to borrow my clothes. Those are mine. Sometimes I want to borrow his clothes too. (laughs) But we have this selfish tendency that lives within us, and we have to combat that. We have to make every effort to, to put that down and to take up the heart of our servant. So that we are like these people who lived in the early church who who really said, what I have is yours. Out of love for God and love for you. What I have is yours. This was voluntary, by the way. There were no laws about this. There were no rules about this. It's not like communism where they take everything from you and say, everything you have is ours. That's not what this is. This was not a government thing. This was the, the spirit of God working its way through the people. It was a natural outflow of the love that they felt for God and then the love that they felt for each other because one feeds the other. Nobody got caught up and said, let's make rules about this. Let's make sure everybody does the same thing. That's not what this is about. This is a beautiful Christian, Christ-like community functioning here. But here's the problem. And here's where we go to the text. We all carry with us the remnants of our sinful nature, the habits, the likes and the dislikes that our sinful nature trained us towards. And so our sinful nature now comes into play here in Acts chapter 5. Let's not just point at Ananias and Sapphira and say, yeah, they're the bad guys. Let's realize that all of us have a potential to be the bad guys. It's in us. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, 
we can mature and we can grow and we can become less and less like that. But it's in us because our flesh corrupts us. Luke introduces us to Barnabas first. And the beautiful thing about Barnabas is we'll see him later in the book of Acts, but he's an encourager. They changed his name. His name was Joseph. If you look there in the text, it was Joseph. And they said, no, 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 let's call him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He's so encouraging. I want to encourage you that if you have the gift of encouragement, use it. Use the gift of encouragement because we get discouraged. Life is hard. And for some people, it's harder than others. We all need to be encouragers to one another. But there are some people who just naturally encourage. They, God, maybe it's supernatural. I shouldn't say naturally. They just supernaturally encourage others. They know how to bring a smile to your face. They know how to, to make sure that you don't fall into a deep, dark hole. You know, they know how to keep telling you, no, no, don't give up. It's going to be okay. So if you have the gift of encouragement, please use it. But Barnabas, who was named by the apostles, the son of encouragement, was also a generous man. And maybe that's one way that he encouraged is to help those who had needs. He was a generous man, and so he shared his resources with the church. But in Acts chapter 5, verse 1, Luke contrasts this by showing us a not-so-generous man and his wife. He shows us that the flesh is there, even in the beauty of this, this new church and the movement of the Holy Spirit and everything that's taken place. He shows us Barnabas, yes, but us also Ananias and Sapphira. With Ananias, the mistake that he made was not that he was holding back some of the money. Now, I want to read the text to you. So, Acts chapter 5, verses 1, we'll go just down to verse 4. Peter asks him a whole bunch of questions about what's going on. But, but now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So, also Remember Barnabas, who just sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. That's fine. Not, nothing bad about that, right? There's no law. He has to bring it all. Remember I said there's no law about this. He doesn't have to bring it all. Here's where he goes wrong. Then Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Did it, didn't it belong to you before it was even sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your own disposal? What made you think by, about doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, to us, but you have lied to God. So the lie is the issue, not the action. This is why the, this message is called, you know, what's your motive? So it isn't what was being done on the outside. What was being done on the outside was perfectly fine. He could bring whatever money he wanted and give that. But the issue is, you know, Barnabas sold a field. He brought it. He brought the money from that. He gave it to the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira sold something and, and wanted to bring that money. It's the same action, but they had completely different motives, a different way of going about it. So 
This is what we have to examine ourselves when we look at a, 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 a passage like this. I'm sure that Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be considered great, generous people like Barnabas. They saw that Barnabas was, was seen as this encourager. He was looked up to in that community. He actually had a name change, right? Peter's asking him, how did the devil get in here? How did the devil get into your heart and make you lie about what you were doing? Because Ananias wanted to be maybe looked up to like Barnabas was looked up to. But he didn't put the effort into it or didn't put the truth into it that Barnabas did. He was a pretender. He, paid a, he was paid a certain amount for that. And then he said, I gave it all to you. But he held back some. And his wife knew this as well. They were pretending. So God makes an example of them. This is the part that, that put fear into the heart of everybody who, who observed this. In verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. When Ananias heard what? He heard, you have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. You've lied to God. It's not about lying to us. This is where the fear sets in. And it's a holy fear. You know, don't, don't get the wrong idea. But there's a little bit of fear here because the people realize God is with them in the church. In fact, there's no, there's no real dividing line, right? When they're together in the church, God is there. No matter what they say, God hears it. This is true, you know. Not to make you fearful, but this is true. When you're pretending to be someone who you're not, God knows. Now, we all want to strive to be better than we really are, right? We know we have weaknesses. We like to hide those weaknesses. We like to make sure people don't see our weaknesses, and so we want to put forth our strengths. That's just how we are because we have sort of like this pride that's in us. Well, Ananias and Sapphira were made an example of dead, dead twice, because when his wife comes in and she's asked the same questions, she does the same thing. It says in, 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 in verse 11, great fear came upon the church. Why? Because they knew now and they understood that God is here in his church and that he sees the motives in their hearts. Let this sink in for a moment. And when I say church, I don't mean this building. God is here in his people, wherever we're gathered, in your home, in your family, with your friends, and he sees your heart. He understands the motive of your heart. Now, this sounds bad, but it's actually good. It sounds bad. You're like, oh, no, no, I can't hide anything from God. But it's actually good because it reminds you that you need a Savior. You need someone to save you from your heart, 
your, your natural inclinations to selfishness, to, to promote yourself, to pride. You need someone to help you with that. And the good news is, so there's always bad news before you hear the good news. The good news is Jesus came to do that. He came to change your heart. In fact, Scripture says he came to give you a new heart. So that the way that you were doesn't dominate over your new self in Christ. Because your new heart is being developed and growing and maturing as you walk with God. As you let his word shape you and, 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 and heal you, really, of all the past sins and all the, the, the wrong motives that you lived under. Jesus is the only one who can do that. And the good news is, he wants to do that. Do you know that? He enjoys doing that. There's this title that Jesus was given. It was meant to be an insult by the Pharisees, but it was actually a blessing to know this, that Jesus is a friend of, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus wants to be the friend of sinners. He hung out with sinners. And the Pharisees were like, why are you hanging out with all those bad people? He loves sinners. He loves them so much, he died for them. He loves them so much, he he showed them the way to the Father. He taught them some very important things that they should incorporate into the way they think and walk and function. But he's a friend of sinners. He loves them. And he wants you to know that your heart, like my heart, is, is corrupted by sin, but that he'll give you a new heart and a new start. And no, it's not instant. Everything doesn't go away. You still have, sometimes that selfishness wants to creep up. We all have our grumpy days, right, Donald? There's certain days we're just more grumpy than others. We don't even know why, but we are. But the good news is Jesus knows that, and he loves you anyway. And he has a plan to change you, to make you new. He's in the process of making you new, of restoring you to what you potentially could have been if you had never sinned. That's what righteousness means, that you're in right relationship with God and right relationship with others and right relationship with yourself. And the righteousness of Christ has been given to you. And we praise God for that. It's humbling, but it's the right position to be in. We're needy for God. We're dependent on God. We need his love. We need his grace. We need his forgiveness every day. Every single day. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the glory for themselves. They wanted to be thought highly of. We all like to be thought highly of. We don't like it when people think lowly of us, right? We want people to think highly of us. But we have to be careful because God's glory is for God alone. He deserves the praise. He deserves the thanksgiving. He deserves our gratitude for eternity, Scripture tells us. We'll keep thanking him into eternity for what he has done for us through Christ Jesus. When we do things to get glory for ourselves or admiration for ourselves, it's ugly. It turns out ugly. But when we do things for God, when our motive is to glorify him, it's a beautiful thing. Do you know that? It's a beautiful thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 
There's a passage in there where, where because Paul's trying to straighten out this church in Corinth that had really gotten into all kinds of twisted places, you know, in the way that they were trying to worship. There were people that were showing up early and eating up all the, all the food that was there for communion. They were eating it up and then people would come a little bit late and there'd be nothing for them. I mean, there was all this kind of stuff going on in Corinth. I mean, it's, it's a good study. We'll have to study it soon. But um, there was this stuff where Paul was just like, no, you can't do it that way. No, stop doing that. Stay home and eat and then come. You know, like just, just be like not so crazy, you know, be driven by the spirit, be motivated by the spirit. But in all of that, he talks about giving. And he says, each one of you should give what they want to give. What they're joyful about giving. For God loves a cheerful giver. If when you give, and I don't just mean money stuff. When you give of your time, when you serve in the nursery, when you help out in children's church, when you come on a clean-up day, you know, in the fall with the men, and you work all day long cleaning up the, the, the property here, when you give, God wants you to do it cheerfully. If you're not able to do it cheerfully, I'm not saying don't do it. What I'm saying is take your heart to God. Say, man, I got an attitude. You know, they asked me to, they asked me to um, stay after church and, you know, pick up the hymnals or something like that, you know, and, and you got like grumpy about it, right? When you have that feeling, you're not cheerful about giving of your time, your talents, or your money, go to God. Go to God because something is a little bit off. Something is a little bit off kilter because when we live in communion with God, when we live in the joy of the Lord, it provides us strength to do all kinds of stuff for him. When we have gotten off kilter sometimes, we haven't spent enough time just reminding ourselves of the grace of God. We're less, when we don't do that, we're less graceful with others. When you've been filled up with grace because God has forgiven you of your sins, that is meant to build you up so that when someone sins against you, you're quick to forgive because you've been forgiven. You understand the equation of God's economy, right? You're, you're quick to give of your time because others gave to you when you were in need. When you needed to be comforted, people comforted you. Now go and comfort them. So it's, it's a product of living in the beauty and the unity of the spirit as a community of believers. When we get tight about it, when we get stingy about it, don't stop doing it, which some people would say, oh, then don't do it. No, I'm not saying don't do it, because you can't obey the commandments of God and, 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 and just sit and do nothing, right? We're called to serve one another and love one another and encourage one another. There's a whole bunch of one another's in scripture that we're called to do, but we're called to do it in joy, or in this case, as a cheerful person. Because we love God and we love others. When we struggle with that, it's not acceptable to God. He wants to work on our hearts. Ultimately, God doesn't need you, but he wants you. He desires you. He wants to make you new and make you reflect him in this world so the world can know that he exists. 
So whether it's a spiritual thing, whether it's about time or whether it's about your treasure, find a way to get joyful about it. Spend the time in God's word, studying his word, taking it in, letting his grace and mercy flow over you so that you are a graceful person, that you are a joyful person. Because being a graceful person and a joyful person and a cheerful person in this world today is not easy. It takes great effort. But Jesus is here to help you with it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your love towards us. We thank you that when we sin, you forgive us. We thank you, Lord, that you've washed us clean. You've given us a purpose. You've given us a future. We thank you for everything that you've poured out on us, every blessing, whether it's materialistic, whether it's, it's something that's spiritual, something that we enjoy in our family. Lord, all these blessings come from you. The beauty of our surroundings come from you. Help us not to be stingy. Help us not to be hypocrites. Help us to be fully engaged with you so that we can fully engage with the world around us so that the world would know that God is in us and that he works his way through us into their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 